I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hi, good morning, everybody. Hi, Sarah, coming in now. Nice to see you. Okay, so this is our last class. We're going to try and put together everything we've been learning in the last few weeks and take it a little bit further. Um, if we have time, we'll do a little synopsis. And, um, you know, um, we've been talking about SNES. But just before we begin, uh, just to talk a little bit about the time period that we're in right now in the Jewish calendar. We're in the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, the day of our greatest catastrophes, calamity. Both temples destroyed on this day, obviously not a coincidence. The same day historically in the Torah that the Jewish people abandoned the uh, promise of going up to the land of Israel. They cried for no reason, as God says, and this became the day of crying for the future. And, um, you know, their inability to go into the land was caused by their own lack of emuna, their own lack of trust in God, and their own belief in themselves, not really understanding their own greatness and um, what Hashem expects of them. So... Um, I mentioned in last week's class, for those of you who listened on Sunday, sorry, hold on. So in last week's class, I mentioned that the first temple was destroyed because of the three cardinal sins that a Jew is supposed to give up his life for, right? Murder, idolatry, and adult, adultery or immoral behaviors. Um, and, you know, we said that 70 years later, the second temple was rebuilt because obviously as terrible as these sins are, they're external sins. And because of it, the Jewish people were very well aware of how they were going wrong. And they were able, after the Purim story, which was a huge wake-up call, of course, I'm sure many of you know the story. We, we were faced with a arch enemy, Haman, who wanted to eradicate us. And if not for the Jewish people waking up and doing teshuva en masse and sort of refocusing uh, themselves on their mission in this world, uh, you know, they basically, because of it, they were able to begin the rebuilding of the second Beit HaMikdash and uh, rectify all of what had gone before. But here we are today, and we are still sitting with a temple that lies in ruins. And we're told it's because of the sin of Sinas Chinam. And we said in the days when the second temple was being destroyed, the Gemara teaches us that the Jews were learning a lot of Torah. Torah was being learned, and there was tremendous chesed being done, much like the times that we're living in today. But there was sinas chinam, hatred of one Jew to the other. 
it was an internal avera that people could basically ignore. And, you know, the idea of this um, exile, this is called the exile of Edom. From the beginning of time, the Jewish people are told that there are going to be four different exiles. The exile that we are in now is the longest one of all, and it's called Edom. Edom is the, the color, Adom. Okay, there are many other reasons. Edom is Esau, Edom is Rome, which is who destroyed our second temple. Um, but Edom is the color red. And I just heard recently that one of the rabbis was teaching that the whole galut, one of the main things that we have to fix, is this is a galut of chitzonius, meaning that, it's a, that people are superficial. We might look very good on the outside. We're keeping the Torah, perhaps. We're doing the mitzvahs. We're doing the chesed. But inside, we're corrupt. Inside, we don't. And we can't fool Hashem when it comes to our love of other Jews. If you describe something and you say what color it is, you know, it's red, it's blue, whatever. You're describing the outside of something. And it's not a very, you know, vivid description. I mean, it tells you one thing, but it doesn't go to any depth in terms of what you're describing. And so the fact that we're in this exile, one of the characteristics of it is that it's very, we're very externally oriented. We don't see deeper than the outside of people. And the challenge of Sinas Chinam is to make our external and our internal match. The, cha the challenge of Sniyut, which is our topic, right, is to develop our internality, to lead from our internality. It's true that our externals matter right? What we wear, how we manifest that internality, how we complement that internality. But the outside, without the internals, without, you know, having worked on the internal, is a facade. It's a trick. It's not real. Yes, they were learning Torah, they were doing a lot of mitzvot, they were doing a lot of chesed, but they hated one another. And that has not been fixed. And so ladies, you know, together we've been trying to develop ourselves, working to, working from the inside out. Because we want the inside and the outside to match. And, you know, what you see is, 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 uh, is really what you get. And, um, you know, as we move forward, in this class, we're going to get a few more ideas about Sneut and how basically it is uh, very much connected to Ahava, to loving other people, to our own sense of boundaries and the boundaries of others, and how it helps us come to a place where, God willing, the temple will be rebuilt. And the Jewish people who really are, um, you know, what are we mourning right now? We're mourning the concealment of the Jewish people's greatness not only within and among ourselves, but to the world at large. Our capacity to lead the world to a better world is not realized. We are constrained 
where we have so many obstacles, external obstacles, the anti-Semitism around us. But these are just really an illusion because the real obstacles we face are internal, whether within ourselves or within our communities. And when we fix those, then our families even. And when we fix those, then God will be able to shine to the world and, and bring it to where it's meant to be. And this is what we cry for. Okay. So last week we spoke about different ideas regarding SNES. We talked about how SNES has to do with spiritual flexibility, right? Acceptance of where you are, covering your ego and saying, if God put me here, this is where I'm supposed to be. We talked about SNES in terms of chesed. When we do kindness for other people, it shouldn't be coming from a posture of, well, what's in it for me? What do I get from this? What are they going to do back for me? But rather, when we do acts of chesed, we're moving that chesed forward in the world. We want them to pass it on, you know, to pass it forward and to create this wonderful chain of light and kindness and giving. And we're doing the chesed because we want to be more like Hashem, because it's coming from our internal desire to connect to Hashem and not worry so much about if somebody's an ingrate. You know, that's their problem. It says in the Gemara, somebody who, sla- who, who is ungrateful is like as if they're slapping the jaw of Hashem. In other words, if, you, if you're not grateful to other people, the extension of that is you're not grateful to Hashem either. But that's each one of our own, you know, things to work, something to work on is our own gratitude to others, you know recognizing the good that other people do for us, even in such small ways. What other pe- whether other people recognize what we do, that's not our business. That's their, that's their uh, work. We still keep on giving. We still flex that giving muscle, right? In areas in circle one, when we have to, when it's people that, you know, are in our lives. And uh, we do it because that's what Hashem wants. And we get a lot of reward for that. According to the effort is the reward. According to the difficulty is the reward. The last thing we talked about is sneas and speech. We had talked about it earlier, not being the center of attention, not being the limelight. But we talked about it in terms of receiving criticism, right? That when other people might say something to us, Rabbeinu Yona taught us that the sneas person becomes wise, the sneeze person is a wise person. Why? Because he doesn't have to expose the craving or desire of his own heart. In other words, he knows how to keep quiet. Whether it's a conversation where you know something that they don't know and you want to be smarter and you want to be, uh, let people know what you know, and instead you re- remain quiet, or whether it's in a conversation that you would rather not have had with somebody who's telling you something that you don't particularly like to hear, right? We, we said about King David, he said, when my enemies rise up against me, I will listen. Because if I can learn something from my enemies about how to improve myself, I want to know. I want to know where I'm going wrong. I want to fill up my cup my cup with all the blessings that Hashem wants to give me, but I know that there's a hole in my cup, my my character flaw, 
is my whole. And if other people will help me to know what that is, then I welcome it. And even more so from those who love me, who really know me. As much as that stings, the wise person wants to hear because we have a mitzvah in the Torah to love rebuke, to love criticism, and to become wise from it. Okay, not an easy thing. Okay, I want to continue with this idea of speech. Just one other idea that's interesting. So um, there's a conversation that talks about the idea that when we listen to someone else, there's two types of listening. There's something called inward listening or outward listening. So when a person is listening, they have to ask themselves the question, am I listening to this because I, I'm going to give this over to the next person? In other words, as soon as I hear it, I'm going to pass on this nugget of truth, this, you know, it can even be something very profound. Or am I going to hold it? inside of me and let it germinate let it take root because there's an idea in yiddishkeit that just because you heard something even something very profound you're doing a disservice to yourself when you speak it out immediately now the famous example that they give is a rabbi Sorrel salanter who was the beginning beginning rav of the whole muster movement which is the movement that is dedicated to character development through the Torah. And it says that he had this beautiful parable, if you remember, and I've said it before, where he was once walking late at night by the little home of a shoemaker. And it was very, very late. And there was a light on. And the shoemaker was busy fixing shoes. And Israel Salanter you know, you can imagine this little shtetl in Poland where he lived. Maybe he knocked on the window. Maybe he peeked his head in the door. And he said, Reb Yid, why are you up so late? Why are you, why are you working? And the shoemaker responded to him, you know, as long as the candle is burning, I can fix. I can fix. I can mend. And Rav Yisrael Salanter took from his simple words, which, you know, were just the simple meaning of the, of the language. You know, as long as I got light here, I'm going to work. I'm going to make a living over here. But Rav Yisrael Salanter took from this, wow, this is so profound, because what this shoemaker doesn't realize is he's telling me that as long as my soul is alive, as long as my candle is burning, I can fix. I can fix myself. He's fixing the soles of shoes, but I can fix my own soul. Now, the amazing thing about this is that we're told that it took Rabbi Yisrael Salanter 21 years after this event to actually give it out to the world. Because for 21 years, he was just holding it inside of himself and letting it become part of himself. Because as soon as you open your mouth and send it out, it doesn't have the same potency anymore. And basically the idea is that, you know, that's the way we are. As soon as we hear something, we want to go and say it, right? And especially if you're a teacher or somebody, you know, you want to give it out. 
But, you know, Dina Schoonmaker, who's been a teacher for many, many, many years at Michala in Jerusalem, she says, like, you know, knowing this idea, sometimes she'll just try and hold it. You know, the most we can hold it today is if we're lucky, a few minutes, even an hour, a couple of hours, a couple of days even, right? And that's a lot for us. Because we're just like, you know, we're social media, we're Facebook, we're like, give it out right away, don't hold on to it, spread it to the world, make yourself famous, whatever it is. But true wisdom, the tznu'im, the, the sneeze person, the one who's building their internality, listens inwardly, not in order to, in order to give it away but to let it germinate inside of themselves, almost like, you know, the Eastern idea of a mantra, a saying, something that you hold in for yourself. Because the moment you let it out through your lips, you've diminished it already. The power of it that came right to you for a reason. So just something to think about, ladies. Okay, to give this idea over a little bit more, so even though it's not Hanukkah, we know that there's a uh, dispute between Hillel and Shammai regarding how you're supposed to light the candles, okay? Shammai said you should light eight candles the first night because on the first night, we know the miracle was that the candle, you know, it was lit for eight nights. And then every night of Hanukkah, you should light one less so that by the last day of Hanukkah, there's just one candle left. But Hillel, of course, says, no, you should start with one and go to eight. Now, why do we end up puskening like Hillel? Why is it that we all know that that's the way we do it, right? The first night we start with one and we go up to eight. So the idea here, again, has to do with this, with this concept of listening. It says regular people, people who are regular like us, the truth of the matter is, is that the first night of Hanukkah is the most exciting, right? That's what you've been building up for. You can't wait to eat the latkes. You can't wait to eat the donuts. You're going to do it all on the first night. You're going to have the biggest party, right? You're going to do everything on that first night. And what Shammai was saying is that's why there should be eight candles on the first night, because that's reflective of the highest point of the holiday, which is the first night. And let's face it, the way human nature is, is that with each night of Hanukkah, right, your excitement diminishes, you've already gained 10 pounds by the fourth night, right, and you don't want another luck, and you don't want another donut, and you don't want anybody coming over. So the truth is, is that's the way it is. So that by the, last, the eighth night, there's one little candle left, and that's the way we feel. But even if that's true of human nature, what Hillel says is that's not the way we should be. We should try to be like the tzaddik. And the tzaddik sees every single night of Hanukkah, not that his excitement is getting less and less, but that it's becoming more and more and more, that it's cumulative, right? That the first night it's one, the second night it's two, the third night it's three. It's like that idea, that inward listening, right? That instead of it just being the big fireworks on the first night, you're holding it. You're holding it inside. And it's becoming greater and more and more light and more light. And it's developing you. 
And so the reason we light, even though it goes against what's, you know, natural, is because we want to be on that level of the tzaddik that understands that when you hold it, the spiritual glow and the growth, and you develop it, and you allow it to gestate without giving it out, without, you know, telling everybody about it, that's the secret to becoming more and more excited with every single night. So both of these, you know, th this idea is inspiring us to be Tsanua, to take the idea and grow with it, to let the idea sit with you over time, develop yourself by holding it. You know, the third meal of Shabbos is actually the same idea. The third meal of Shabbos, which many people completely disregard, right? The Shalashudas meal. Um, and even those people who might eat it, they're already thinking of, oh, when's Shabbos going to be over? When can I clean up? When can I get rid of all the dishes in the sink? When can I just, you know, get, get, get ready to go to the concert I'm going to, even though not happening uh, this year, last year, um, you know, that unfortunately Shalashudas is the third meal of Shabbos, which is actually the culmination of the evening meal, the lunch meal, and finally that Shalashudas as Shabbos is waning, as we're beginning to go into the week, it's actually considered the most holy, the most um, full of, again, Shabbos, right? It represents the male and the female in terms of the two halas together. Uh, the evening meal is the woman, the, the lunch meal is the man. This is all Kabbalistic, but whatever, maybe we'll do a class on Shabbos. And Shalashudas is the two together. So Shalashudas is the holiest, the most spiritual. And yet it's disregarded because, again, it's like I've had enough already. Right? Isn't Shabbos over yet? When is this going to end? When can I clean up? When can I get out of here? So this is the idea, again, of the idea of holding it. Okay, new idea. Another idea about Sneas that we have not really discussed yet, it comes from a Gemara in Yoma. It's the concept of Lechem Hapani. Okay, so in the Beit HaMikdash, which God willing, we should have very, very soon, um, there were these 12 breads that stayed fresh from Sunday to from week to week, they, they didn't become stale, even though they were left out in this beautiful uh, gold stand with 12 area, 12 places for the bread. They represented the Jewish people's prayers for Parnassah, for a good livelihood. And the, the Kohanim would eat this bread in the base of Mikdash. Now, they weren't eating it from physical hunger but it was a purely spiritual, spiritual. Somebody just told me the word spiritual has the word spirit and ritual in it, right? So it's interesting that you have that combination in the English, right? In Hebrew, we call it ruchniut. Ruchniut, ruach is your spirit, right? So the spiritual, the Kohanim would eat the bread in the Beit HaMikdash. So uh, here's a quote from the Gemara in Yoma. It says, Yoma, it says, at a certain time, there was a curse on the Lechem HaPanim, and every Kohen would only get a tiny piece of the bread. They wouldn't even get a Kazayat. 
A kazayat is a certain measurement in halacha that if you don't eat at least a kazayat of bread, then you can't bench. You can't say birkat hamazon, right? If I only eat, a, if I wash and eat a crumb of bread, well, I didn't really fulfill the mitzvah properly because you have to eat a certain amount. I think a kazayat would be the volume of an egg kazayat. No, no, sorry, uh, the volume of an olive. Sorry about that. Kezayat, an olive. And in those days, olives were quite big. Okay, they weren't a tiny little olive. Okay, they couldn't even eat a kezayat, but only the size of a seed. Because of this, it says the modest among them of the Kohanim would hold back their hand when they saw there wasn't enough. And they would allow others to take for themselves. Okay, so here you have the Kohanim. There's a certain curse on the bread. There's not enough for everybody. And certain Kohanim would hold themselves back. It says there in the Gemara, a derogatory word, basically saying the grabbers would take. The Tsunuim, the modest ones, would hold their hands back, but the grabbers would take. So what does this have to do with what we've been saying about Sneha all through this series? What does this have to do with covering the ego? It means that they have the ability to say, it's not all about me. Let me move aside and let others have. Sneut is about not being greedy, not thinking about yourself, but thinking about others, putting others ahead of you. It's a certain self-control. It's a certain ability to take a step back. Of course, it's definitely connected to humility, right? Letting others go ahead. So the Gemara is talking about a physical example of taking food when there isn't enough to go around. So the Tsunua type of person will notice, for example, how much, how many people are sitting at a table and not to take too much. You know, one of my pet peeves when my grandchildren you know, no, this is just childlike behavior. And maybe you've seen it too. When they come sometimes, I'm just amazed. Like, you know, there's, you know, 25 little pickles in the in the bowl and one kid will take like, you know, 20 of them, whatever. It's like, hello, you know, you kind of have to teach them. You know, there are other people at the table. Like, did you notice they don't, not all kids, especially ones that have very big eyes and really are like love food, notice or know this concept. And you have to literally teach it. You know, you can have more. Right. We all we all knew that expression as kids. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Right. <laughs> because there's something about kids where it's like, I don't know whether it's the scarcity mindset you know, a psychological term for I better get it all because otherwise there won't be anything left. I mean, you know, I come from a family of five kids. We knew we had to eat fast, you know, if we wanted seconds and even thirds, you know, eat fast, right? Um, you know, but that idea that you have to be taught, but it says it's a new person will notice. Okay, we're talking here physically, but spiritually too. It's also about spiritual opportunities. The Kohanim were not eating out of hunger, right? The Kohanim represent the most spiritually elevated 
of the Jewish people. That's why we give them extra kavod. That's why if there's a Kohen sitting at your table on Friday night, right? You say, are there any Kohanim here? And the Kohen is the one that leads, the, leads everybody in benching. We have to give extra kavod, extra honor to, to Kohanim because they have an extra added potential of spiritual excellence that the rest of the Jews don't have. Where does it come from? That's another sheer, but basically it's because they come from the people who did not get involved in the sin of the golden calf at that moment in history. And so God made the tribe of Levi who didn't get involved into Kohanim, uh, some of them into Kohanim, the sons of Aaron. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, how does a person relate to this in terms of spiritual opportunities? So Dina Schoonmaker gives some examples from Israel. You know, you're at the hotel, you traveled all the way from Toronto, you got through, you did all your tests, you did your COVID test, you finally got to the hotel, and all you want to do is bud in there and get a good spot, you know, and see if you can sort of squeeze somebody out of that place there and get yourself in there, right? right in the center of the hotel in that, you know, sweet spot where, of course, God is going to listen to you even better, right? And, you know, you do this at the expense of sort of nudging somebody else who's like in the middle of their Shimona Esrei or pushing literally somebody out of the way so that you can grab that spot, okay? Or let's say you're going to a class in Jerusalem and, you know, it's a very famous speaker and there's limited space there. So you do the Tsunua thing because you live in Jerusalem and you can go to the Shirim anytime, but you see there's some Jewish tourist from Nebraska, you know, who's really excited to be there. And so you say, you know what, I can have this spiritual opportunity again. Let me let this lady from Nebraska, right, who's here for a week, let her take my spot. There's only a limited you know, place here for sitting, I'll stand, let me sit, let me let her take my spot. So the idea of Sneot is there's times when I need to look around and see who else might need this opportunity more than me. Uh, she gives another example. Let's say, you know, somebody like myself, I'm always asked to speak. I'm always asked to give a Devar Torah. So I see, you know, maybe there's somebody else who really would love to do that. And I say, you know what, let Somebody else do it. Let so-and-so do it. Let, let her do it because I'll have this opportunity again. But, you know, let, let her have the limelight. Let her shine. So this is the idea, okay? It's not just about my inspiration, but it's about other people's inspiration as well. The Kohanim who withdrew their hand from the bread and said, let others take this spiritual opportunity, you know, have the ability to eat enough of the bread so they can have that spiritual uh, uplift. All my time will come. That's the idea. So Dina Schoonmaker tells a true life story about her own son. They were, um, her child, her son was moving from high school to the next level yeshiva. And they wanted him to get into this very top yeshiva it's called the Hebron Yeshiva in Israel, which is really like the Harvard of yeshivas in their world of, you know, yeshivas. And she said, you know, her son was a very good boy, very smart. He had all the credentials. And the uh, 
you know, the, his high school yeshiva said to him, listen, don't worry. You don't even have to take the test that the Hebron yeshiva is giving. You're in. You're in automatically. You're, you're the kind of, you know, material they're looking for. So, you know, he was happy. The family was happy. But then what happened is when they posted who got into the Hebron yeshiva, his name was not on the list. And it turned out that um, his high school Rosh Yeshiva said to him, you know what, I'm really sorry that I told you that, you know, you're a shoo-in, that it's, you're going to get in for sure. Because it turns out that the boys who got in ahead of you, they had certain protexia. You know, they knew somebody in the Hebron Yeshiva, they were related to somebody, and they used their protexia, if you all know that word, it's a big word in Israel, right? Your, uh, your inner circles, right? People that could get you somewhere. They used them to jump ahead, and all the spots ended up being taken. And, you know, connections in Israel are very, very important. And so he did not get in. Now, you can imagine how devastated he was. You can imagine how, how hard that was. All of a sudden, there's a knock on his door in his dorm room. And the Rosh Yeshiva of Hebron's son is there. And he was one of the boys, of course, who obviously got accepted. And he says to Dina Schoonmaker's son, you know, he says, you're going to Hebron. And, you know, he replies, no, I'm not. And he says, yes, you are, because you're taking my spot. Anyway, again, it would be like giving up your spot in Harvard. And of course, they're arguing back and forth. But this boy says to him, listen, I got in because I'm the Rosh Yeshiva's son. Okay? But you really deserve it. The boy insisted that he go instead of him. And he said to him, listen, I can go to another yeshiva. I can do well anywhere. And I'm not taking no for an answer. Now, obviously, this was a very special boy. He gave up something that had tremendous spiritual status for another person. And that was very unusual. But the story is, is, is showing you that, you know, this happens even today, that there are people like this who says, listen, you're the one who deserves it. You take the spot. I can get spiritual benefits in a lot of places, in a lot of ways. I don't need it. And that's the idea of this sneeze. Look around. Is there someone else who needs it more than me? Is there someone else who deserves it more than me? Now, again, you have to know when to do this and when not. There's an idea in Judaism of Hayecha Kodmi, that actually you come first, okay? We have the uh, standard example that you're in the desert. There's one flask of water. There's only enough to keep one of you alive. There's, you know, you're there with your friend and the Torah says you have to drink it, okay? If it's your flask of water, you don't share it. One of you is gonna die. You come first. So again, there are times when you do come first and there are times when you can let others go ahead of you and you have to know the difference. Okay, am I gonna lose something if I give you my place to watch the dancing on Simcha's Torah and give you the front row seat? 
The Tanua person covers his ego. It's not all about me. It's about all of us together. The Tsunuyim, again, like it says in the Gemara, hold back their hand and let others go ahead because they say, your gain is my gain too. We're interdependent. Remember our class on jealousy? We're positively interdependent. The gain of another Jew, whether materially or spiritually, is my gain too because we're all interconnected. Instead of having a scarcity mindset, we have a generosity mindset that there's, there's, there's more than enough for everyone. And when I hold myself back, I'm not losing anything. If anything, I'm gaining. There's another um, uh, ma mantra that I think Rabbi Yisrael Salanter made famous. He said, your gashmiut is my ruchniut. In other words, when I hold myself back and deny myself something, let's say materially or physically, you know, I take less pickles because I want to make sure that you have more. Your material well-being is my spiritual growth, right? When I say, you know, you go ahead, you take that, you have that. That's how I grow spiritually. What? You're going to let them have the front seat in the hotel? You're going to give them the front seat in the shear? Yes, because your physical, material, what you want is my spiritual growth. It's a very deep concept, and it, it's very apropos in many, many areas, you know? Okay. So, so the, the Tanua person is covering their ego. It's not about me. The Tznuim are holding their hand back. Your gain is mine too. When you make peace, when I make peace with another person, it's the gain of all of Kal Yisrael. When I come a little bit closer to that difficult person in my circle one, or I reach out with a smile on my face to people in circle three, it's everybody's gain. It shines a light on all the Jewish people. When you give the limelight to someone else, when you could have been in the spotlight, when you let somebody else do a chesed, somebody called you to drive a very important rabbi to a wedding, and there's nothing more than you want to do than sit in that car and hear his wisdom pouring from his mouth and have that tremendous merit of being in such close contact, right? But you know somebody else really, really, really wants to do it. Could you imagine giving that up? That's a big level. Okay, you take him. You, I see you really want it. You know, we had that opportunity with Rabbi Trank, who died recently. They just wrote a book about him. Uh, somebody called us and asked us, could we drive him to a wedding? I mean, they, they didn't have enough room. I don't know. He was coming late. And he was, it was just like sitting in the car with a celebrity. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know people get, a, you know, imagine sitting in the car with Barbara Streisand. I don't know, whoever you love, right? It's just like, you know, I was in the back seat, right? I was just the woman in the back. My husband was driving, right? But it was like, wow, we've got this like rock star in our car. You know, how did we get so lucky? You know, imagine just passing that on. Okay, you really, okay, go ahead, you take them. Oh, well, you know, that would be really hard. Okay. 
let's say somebody, one of your friends is telling you something wonderful that just happened to their child. You know, they just got into Harvard. They just did this. So being cute is enjoying, listening, hearing their excitement, sharing in their enthusiasm, not trying to top their story with a story about what your kid just did. And what you got to hear where my kid just got to, what my kid just did, blah, 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 right? Being sneeze means letting them have the limelight, taking their joy and making it your own, moving out of the limelight. Okay, next idea. We don't have much time left, but I really want to finish this. Sneeze is also about good boundaries. In today's world, we have to teach our children what is appropriate and inappropriate to expose. Now, you know, I don't know. I think we're all children today. You know, we grow, grow, we've grown up in a society in a time where we tell all. There is nothing, there is nothing that's private. There is nothing that's discreet. There is nothing that has to be a secret, right? Show it, flaunt it. If you got it, flaunt hey, it. Oh, look here. Come on. You want to wave to her? Wave. Uh, let it out. Let it all hang out, right? Started in the 60s. If you can't do this, you're repressed. You've got issues. You need therapy, right? And this is the time that we live in. Schlanger says every creation, every creation was created with self-protecting qualities. The skunk uses his smell to spray as a self-protective device. The chameleon changes colors and camouflages itself. The cheetah protects itself by running very, very fast. The porcupine has its quills. The turtle has its shell. What's the quality? What's the self-protective quality that the human being has? So first of all, and that and anatomically, the brain is covered by the skull. The heart is covered by the rib cage. The bones are covered by the skin. The skin is covered by clothing, right? The person themselves is covered by a home by shelter. Everything in this world was built with some kind of self-protective covering. The inner organs that are the most precious have so many layers of covering. Bike riders wear helmets. Soldiers have bulletproof vests. They need extra levels of covering. From a spiritual perspective, there is a layer of protecting our privacy. And that's called sneeze. Sneeze is about protecting what's private. Where do we get the concept of sneeze? From Adam and Chava in Gan Eden at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Torah tells us they're there to work the garden and protect the garden. Le'avda, from the word Avoda, Ula Shamra, Shamor, to protect. To work is outward, it's external, it's producing, right? Working the garden, 
you know, making a livelihood, getting out there in the world. To protect is internal. Guarding what you have. Guarding what you have, right? Now, home is the place, used to be anyway, where a man came home to after being away at work. Home was a place that protected a person's spirituality. You can't control what's outside your home. You can't control, but you can control what comes into your home and what stays out. Your home is your boundary against the world. It's your internal private space. And that's what we want to do is screen what comes in and out. Sneas is the ability to hold close to me what is near and dear to me and not let everybody know about it. Rush Schlanger said a person is really involved with protecting his unique identity so it won't be blurred and lost. That's what SNEAS is, protecting your real identity so it won't be blurred and lost or become, like we said at the beginning, externalized and external and shallow and superficial and not developing our internality. Now, I know at the beginning of the series, we said that SNEAS is not about women, that SNEAS is a huge topic. It's one third of the Torah. It's about covering your ego. It's about weeding out ulterior motives. It's about making God your number one audience. It's about how you talk, how you are in conversation if you share space and give other people the floor. It's about how you receive criticism and whether you can hold yourself back and listen and hear and become wise and hold an idea for longer than a minute and let it gestate and germinate inside you and change you. But truthfully, ladies, we're coming back to women because women, we said at the beginning of the series, have an extra added ability to attain this internality because of the way God made us. Because our job was always the job of Lashamra to protect to be the inner domain of the home, to be the internal compass of our families and where and what we bring into our house and what we don't allow in our house. That's, that's we are the guardians of that. A person, it says in the Gemara, the special covet of a woman is that she protects what is inside. As it says in Tehillim, kol kavuda bat melech panima, the honor of a, the daughter of the king, a Jewish woman, panima, panima is within. It's within. That's where her honor resides. The home, right? Bayit, the bayit, right? That's why the school is called Beis Yaakov, right? The house of Jacob. There was a great rabbi. He said, don't call my wife my wife. Call her my home. She's my home. Right? The tone of the home is set by the woman. If she's happy, everybody's happy. 
If she's miserable, everybody's miserable. Women, that's where our power always and will always reside. The home is the place that protects people. The home is the place where privacy and safety are where they rule. Um, in the Gemara, it says, a person who doesn't have a wife does not have a protective wall. A woman protects a man. That's why in every Jewish wedding, the woman walks around the man, right? Seven times. She's creating the home. The chuppah is like the home, right? The four walls that are open. What's going to come in? What's going to stay out? And the woman walks around the man because she's protecting him. She's his protective layer. You don't have to expose yourself out there in the world, is what the home is saying. You can come home and protect yourself. We teach our children not to trust everything in the outside world. There's two words for the word wall in Hebrew. One is kir, and one is choma. Kir comes from the shorach, the root of the word car, right? Carly, I'm cold. Core, it's cold, right? Don't go out there. It's cold outside, we say. You can't trust everyone out there. You can't trust everything out there. But there's another word for, for wall, and that's the word choma, which comes from the word ham, home, hot heat, right? That's what the home provides, right? The warmth of the hearth, I don't know, whatever, there was probably some saying like that, right? Home is where the heart is. Uh, the home provides a warm place. Here at home, we respect you and your individuality. We don't want the world out there to take it away from you. Here you have that privacy and that safety and that place to develop your internality, right? But unfortunately, we live in a world, I'm quoting Mary Pfeiffer. I really wanted to look her up and learn more from her. But she was a woman who wrote a lot about teenage girls in Western society and how they give up their identity because of the externality that's, that the Western world and our exile, our present-day exile, is so sickeningly focused on at the expense of our internality, right? That girl, she says, and this is a non-Jewish source, have given up their identity for having the right body and attracting attention when they go out. You know, Dina Schoomaker was saying it's a phenomenon that when communities were more insular and small, you know, when Jews were living in the shtetl or people come from smaller towns, right? People really knew who you were. You know, if you mentioned a girl's name, oh, she's the sweet girl who bakes really good apple pies, you know, or she's the, uh, that girl who's so, you know, musical or rides horses or whatever. But she says in a big city, you're not known for your individuality. So you have to kind of be out there and look great and try to attract attention to yourself by having purple hair or, 
many piercings or doing something to yourself today to be able to feel like you are, you can shine. And what this Mary Pfeiffer says is teenage girls sacrifice who they really are to get attention for their outside self. They'll give up the unique aspects of self just to have the perfect figure. And we all do that. What Rushlanger says is we all give up important parts of ourselves. The work outside does not want you to have your own identity. The, sorry, the world outside does not want you to have your own identity. The world outside wants you to be a lemming. It wants you to externalize yourself, become, get attention at whatever way you can to be something special by exposing yourself, by making yourself, you know, putting yourself out there. There will always be opposition to the privacy of the individual and their privacy slowly but surely gets erased. If not for the concept of Tzniut, which allows a person to have his space, privacy, and specialness that doesn't have to be exposed. Now, by the way, this was written before, it comes from Torah sources from ancient times, that there's always a force that wants to erase the privacy of a human being and make them feel they have to expose themselves in some inappropriate way to feel like, you know, they have an identity or people know them. Um, written before the age of technology, that our privacy is being erased. So called the Homer, even more so in our age of social media, Facebook, our world of expose, tell us more, tell us everything. People are at risk, not only physically, but spiritually for not having any privacy. So ladies, you know, I want to end this whole course with the idea of the relevance of Tzniut in our time and for women, especially. Okay? Tzniut is fighting back. It's my body. It's my secrets. My relationships are private. Keep it private, says Snias, because Snias is the answer to society pushing, and it pushes hard. And believe me, the, the religious world is not immune to this at all. The religious world has hopped on the bandwagon with everybody else. Dina Schoonmaker says today, you can get an Instagram where people put their positive pregnancy tests on Instagram for all their religious friends to see. Okay. Now we don't have to share inappropriate things. We should only be exposing something that's completely generic. My body, my special relationships are uniquely mine. Share recipes, said Dina, not your husband's difficulties. This generation talks about everything. You don't sit in the park and tell your friends about how much you're worth, how much is in your bank account. You don't sit in the park and tell your friends about all your husband's problems. You know, that's not Sneas. Sneas is a way of teaching boundaries. What do you show and what do you hide? What is private and dear is not exposed, right? We all know this physically, materially. 
the more important something is, the more uh, expensive something is, the more it's worth something, the more you're going to hide it. You're not just going to leave your diamonds hanging around, right? You have a, a safety deposit box. You get to the hotel, you lock it up. You put it, you know, into something because you don't want it exposed. You don't want there to be a chance that it could be stolen, taken from you. We know this with material things. That's why even in our spiritual, the Torah always gets covered, right? I remember as a kid, right? It was like a parade. You're sitting in shul. First, they have to open the curtain, you know? Let's open the curtain, everybody, right? Some, but some man's job is to open the curtain, and the next guy's job is to open up the aron, right? Those heavy wooden doors. The next guy's job is to pick up the Torah and take it out. Then there's a whole ceremony about undressing the Torah, right? Taking off the cover, taking off those things at the top, those silver ornaments, taking off the ribbon that keeps the Torah closed, opening it up. All of this, right, after the parade, and then reading from it, and then doing the same thing over again until it's put back in its place. And all the men shake each other's hands and say, Yasher Koach, we did it. And all the women watch in wonderment and go, what did they do already? No, whatever. <laughs> what are they so proud of themselves? Uh, you know, but, you know, shaking each other's hands, kavod, the Torah, the mezuzah, the woman, we cover ourselves. We have extra covering because, yes, women have that extra potential to be internal. But we also have a Yetzir Hara, as Rebetzin Heller says from the Gemara, a woman desires to be seen and a man desires to notice. That women like to show their beauty and men like to notice women's beauty. That's the way we're wired. On the other hand, we have this internality, this preciousness. In Judaism, you know, it's not women first, right? The women walked behind the men, just like in China or whatever, not because they were inferior, but because we're more precious, because the men want to protect us, not ladies first, go ahead, Go in before me into the party so everybody, you can make the grand entrance and I'll come after you. Everybody can see what a knockout my wife is, right? All the men can ogle her and get jealous. Gee whiz, why do I have this mousy wife? You know, Why can't she be dressed to the nines like my friend's wife? No. What's most precious is most hidden. You know, that's why we have separate seating at Jewish weddings. That's why we have a mechitza in the shul. We don't want to be distracted by the opposite sex. God knows it's normal. God knows what we're made of. He created us. These are boundaries. Sneas is giving us boundaries. If you show it to everyone, it means it's not an expensive item. If you put your jewels outside the front door, right? They're not worth much. They're not worth anything. 
So this is true in terms of our Ruchnius and our Gashmius as well. Just one last point, something that's very interesting that I didn't share with you before, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And that is, um, you want to find the source for it. Okay, hold on one sec. I know I'm going over time. If you have to leave, I won't be in, I won't be um I won't be insulted. I'm probably not gonna find it. Basically, what it says is the nature of a human being is to hide their material and to expose their spiritual um well wealth. So the idea is, is, you know, if, uh, you know, I always think of like, you know, you buy a new dress, ladies, and your friends come over and they say, wow, I love what you're wearing, right? And if you're like me, you'll say, oh, it was only $20 at Winners, you know, like, don't get so excited, right? (laughs) You know, like, relax, you know, or, you know, if somebody says even something simple, like, how did you sleep last night, right? You can't say I slept great. You have to say, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I slept okay. So, uh, you know, there's all these examples that the Gemara is basically saying that when, you know, can you afford this? Well, I don't know if I could really afford it. I'm going to go in Israel, especially, she says, even if you could afford it, you're still going to haggle. You're still going to haggle with the guy in Machane Yehuda, you know, especially if you're a real Israeli, even though you might have more than enough money to pay the regular price. Because the idea is, is that in material things, we always want to look like we have less. If I say I slept too well, then it means, you know, nobody's going to help me today because they'll think I'm so well rested, I can do everything myself. If I if they think that I spent so much money on my dress, well, then maybe they're going to expect more money from me in the next uh, tzedakah, uh, whatever campaign that's going on. The point is, is when it comes to our material, we tend to minimize. However, what he says is when it comes to our spiritual things, our mitzvahs, we love it when people think we are, we do more than we actually do. Okay, we don't mind it if people think we're a bigger tzedakah, we do more chesed, we give more tzedakah, etc., than might be the truth. That we don't minimize, right? Oh, no, no, don't say that about me. I'm really not that great. I'm really not that... That we don't necessarily minimize. And he says, really, it should be the opposite. That if we realized how incredibly precious our spiritual behaviors are to Hashem and in the world, then we would be much more hiding those things than showing them off. We wouldn't want our name on the, on the wall. We wouldn't want everybody to know how much money we give, how much we do. We'd want to keep it private. And we said, just to end the class, that there are people who run away from honor their whole life. And after they die, the honor catches up to them because God knew they didn't want it in this world. But you go to their shiva and you find out how they did all these secret acts. I wish I could remember where it is, but there was a guy named Rabbi Gershon Berg who died in Israel. He was a rabbi, I think, at Torah, and uh, he drowned. It was like a freak accident. 
but at his shiva it came out that he had all these little things that he used to do in his lifetime one example i remember is he went to the local toy store in some neighborhood that wasn't a very a well-to-do neighborhood in israel and he told the guy i want to pay for any kid who comes in here that he gets a balloon you know on his birthday that's i want to pay for that i want that to be my mitzvah nobody knew about that until after he died there were other things like that that he did there were stories i mean i won't tell you now about my brother who we always called agent 007 who never told you where he was going and what he was doing he borrowed my mother's car once or twice a week she would give it to him and again after his death we heard all kinds of hilariously funny stories about places he went and things he did for people that nobody knew about you know one cousin told a story how you know michael would say can you give me a ride and if you gave him a ride you never knew where you were going he said okay wait can we just stop at this gas station because i have to uh you know i have to get get something at the gas station right and then you know he'd pick up something at the gas station some mysterious thing it always had to be the cheapest price too so it was a particular gas station that had the cheapest price in this thing and he'd say okay now do you mind if we just you know go to this address over here and this was it would take a whole day to take him home okay and 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 he'd say well what are you doing over here he'd say well i always deliver a coke to this guy every tuesday morning and he knows i'm coming he waits for it you know so i got to go there and do that okay so you know he goes okay so i take him over there and we give the coke you know the next stop is like anyway we were just cracking up because nobody knew but like you know if you offered him a ride you never knew <clears throat> you wouldn't get home for another few hours because there were all these hasadim <clears throat> that he had to do and of course everybody always felt about him that he was a hasad case poor man he was never married he had no children you know religious jews welcomed him into their homes they had him for shabbos they fed him they took care of him they did all kinds of hasad for him but nobody uh, many people did not know about the tremendous little acts of chesed that my brother was doing so just to end it says there's a gemara in baba basra lamad hay it says it talks about people who are burnt by the chuppah of other people so what does this mean it's referring to a person who is jealous of the chuppah that's covering someone it says at the end of our lives when we get to shamayim one of the difficulties there is that we're going to be jealous of how other people were able to hide their level their spiritual level in this world we want people to notice all the good things that we do but the person who was able to hide their good deeds in this world will be jealous of them that they were able to cover them because again back to our number one audience the idea of sneas is shifting recognizing that as much as we want to look good in the eyes of others and as much as we want and care and should about what other people think of us in terms of our behavior our number one audience is hashem 
And our number one question is always, well, what does Hashem think of the way I'm dressed or the way I look or the way I'm speaking right now or the way I'm acting or the way I'm letting someone go ahead of me or the way I'm keeping my mouth shut or the way I'm covering myself in some new way, just a little bit more. What does Hashem think of the fact that I've decided not to be on Facebook for and expose everything about me and my life and my vacation and what I'm eating for dinner tonight? You know, what will Hashem, how will that help me to develop that internal private space that is essentially who I am? And that connection to Hashem that roots me in this world and and is my olam haba, is my next world, that relationship that I develop with Hashem, right? All of the people in my life, all of the different situations that I find myself in are all opportunities and challenges and tests to help me to move forward, right? God willing, ladies, through our practice and our work and our consciousness, right? The beginning is just to be conscious. We'll be able to recreate ourselves, recreate the world around us, and bring better days to all of mankind. And when the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, it will be good for everybody, for all of humanity. And we, the Jewish people, will take our rightful place in this world of leading humanity to the truth and for all for all human beings. Okay. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you. Anyway, ladies. Thank you, Deborah. I appreciate Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being an audience. Otherwise, thank you. I pleasure. Myself. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, thank you for allowing me to share. And, uh, you know, just good to go through our notes at this time and you've written down and go through what we already know because there's so much material that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everything is interconnected and, you know, holistic. All of the different meet-out. And, again, we all have our home there. We have you know, what's natural and what's not natural to us, the raw material. And of course, our job is to take our home air and try to just tweak it a little bit. And that's what's called sura, right? Forming, forming ourselves, making us into, making ourselves into something beautiful. And even, you know, the little steps that we take, Hashem is watching and he's felling. And he's getting nachas, and he's saying, yes, that's why you're in the world. That's the purpose. And it's all about coming closer to our true selves and to our true connection with, with the source of everything, with the source of our very being, with the source of our every breath, right? So thanks again, and have a wonderful day, and stay healthy and well. And... Uh, Let's continue next year. Amen. Amen. Yeah. You're so beautiful. Thank you so much. Love you. Mwah. You all. Bye, Take care. Love you. Thank you so much. All right.
All the best. Rest of the summer and easy Thank fast. You. Thank you. And again, just uh, yeah. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye. Bye, Sarah, Sally. Bye, Carol. Proscovia. Bye bye. Nice to nice to see you. Tova Malka. Bye bye, honey. Thank you for coming on. I see you. I notice you. Thank you. Take care. Everybody for teaching today. You're welcome. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at yahoo.ca.